Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To get more programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll only find on Reels Channel. Internationally acclaimed designer and celebrity icon Donatella Versace radiates elegance, confidence, and style. Partnered with her visionary brother Gianni, the fashion house of Versace rose to become a global brand valued at more than $2 billion. But in July 1997, Donatella's glamorous world collapses with the heartbreaking news of a murder in the family. People were absolutely blown away that somebody could have murdered Versace in cold blood. A manhunt begins to find Gianni's murder. Police quickly learn he's killed before and viciously. Once he got a taste for blood, there was no stopping him. So the FBI and Miami police throw a security net around the island. By creating these chokeholds, we drove him into a corner. But will this free killer ultimately escape justice? There is no turning back. He realized he might as well go out with a bang. Around 8.45 on a steamy July morning in 1997, two gunshots echo outside a palatial Miami villa. In an instant, the world-renowned fashion designer is executed. And a spree killer is on the run. For decades, the fashion brand Versace becomes synonymous with impeccable style. But behind the pleats and the perfumes lies an unbreakable bond between the designer and his muse, Johnny and his sister Donatella Versace. Tragically, their dynamic family bond is ripped at the seams by a delusional and dangerous killer, desperate to be a part of their glamorous world. July 15, 1997. Gianni Versace leaves his Miami Beach mansion and takes his morning walk to the local newsstand. Dr. Casey Jordan, criminologist. He would buy his daily paper, any fashion magazines, and get his coffee and walk back to the villa. It was just part of his morning routine. Detective Carlos Noriega, retired lieutenant, Miami Police Department. Walking up his steps to his residence, he was approached by a subject shot twice uh, in the head. When Miami Beach Lieutenant Carlos Noriega arrives at work that morning, he receives a strange comment from a fellow officer. As I entered the police station, I ran into an officer who was exiting pretty hastily saying to me that he would hate to be me on that particular day. I, I raced up to my office and immediately was informed of the incident uh, involving Gianni Versace. Gianni Versace, the famed designer and Miami Beach fixture, is shot twice in the head at point-blank range. As Versace lies bleeding on the steps of his villa, the killer sprints from the crime scene. Gianni's boyfriend and his friend inside the villa heard the gunshots and came running out immediately. The friend of Versace who gave chase followed the shooter into the 1200 block of Collins Court. 
At that point, the shooter turned around and pointed the gun at him. Versace's friend stops in his tracks, now facing down the barrel of the gun that mortally wounded his celebrity friend. But strangely, the assassin does not fire. He flees. He managed to escape down the alleyway and head into a local parking garage. Fire rescue units responded uh, and immediately provided aid uh, to Gianni Versace. And within minutes, they transported him to a trauma center. Versace is rushed to Jackson Memorial Hospital. Camille Ford, designed. Shortly after he arrived at the trauma center, though, he was pronounced dead. At 9.21 a.m., Versace's heart stops. Nearly 5,000 miles away in Italy, Johnny's baby sister, 42-year-old Donatella, receives the heartbreaking news. There is no grief like the grief of losing the person that is your best friend, your confidant, your, your mentor, your protector. Donatella lost more than just a brother. She lost most of her world that day. In 1955, Donatella is born into the affluent Versace family in Reggio Calabria, Italy. Her nine-year-old brother Gianni doesn't pursue finance like his father or older brother Santo. Instead, Gianni decides to follow in his mother's footsteps. Gianni's mother was a dressmaker, which is where he learned his trade and his passion for designing. Even his mother was like, you should go outside and play, and he didn't want to. He wanted to be with his mother, studying her work. Johnny loved it. He wanted nothing more than to be in that room with her, touching the fabrics, going shopping for fabrics, seeing the latest patterns. When young Donatella becomes an adolescent, the aspiring designer Gianni sees his first model. It was basically an opportunity to play dress up. He couldn't wear the dresses, but Donatella could. So Gianni basically took Donatella and made her his muse. So whatever passions, ideas, inspirations he had, Donatella tried it on. Donatella walked it around town. Donatella was the one to make sure it actually worked. Johnny takes his teenage sister under his wing and into his world. He took her out to nightclubs and introduced her to the very kind of fast, fast lane crowd. Johnny was going to some places that no little girl should probably be a part of, but she was safe because she was with Gianni, so she grew up fast. Donatella was a full-fledged woman by the time she was 13. Early on, Johnny sees a counterpart in his baby sister. She had attitude, and that attitude wasn't just something that he enjoyed as being the older brother. It was the inspiration for his designs. And they fed each other creatively. Gianni pushes Donatella to stand apart. He's the one that told Donatella, you're going to do a smoky eye and you're going to be platinum blonde. And there was no turning back. Once Donatella did that, she stood up in the crowd. She became something that other people had to turn their heads and look at. 6,500 miles away, another prized child is born in Southern California. His parents, Modesto and Marianne Cunanan, named their boy Andrew. His father was Filipino, his mother Italian. He was smart. When the family realized that he was gifted, they worked very hard to get him into a prestigious private school. Modesto moves his family to Bonita, a suburb of San Diego, to be close to the acclaimed Bishop's School and he rewards his adolescent son 
with something special. So they moved to a house they really couldn't afford. Uh, and his father decided that Andrew should have the master bedroom. He was a spoiled, rotten brat. His family basically put all of their eggs in their youngest son's basket. The Cunanans weren't a wealthy family, so Andrew learns to adapt to his new surroundings and his affluent classmates. He was very much a social chameleon. He would study them, pick up on their ways, look at the clothes that they wore, the, the cars that they drove, and he strove to be exactly like them. And to stand apart, the outgoing Andrew creates his own reality. He had a different story for everything. He said that his father was an Israeli businessman, that his father was also owned all these plantations in the Philippines. Uh, he, he was always presenting himself as extremely wealthy and privileged, but his stories were highly inconsistent. Friends indulge Cunanan at first, but they quickly discover Andrew's not what he claims to be. Everybody wanted to be around him at first until they realized that he was lying to their face, manipulating them, using them. Everyone knew that he was a pathological liar. He may have been the life of the party, but you couldn't trust him as far as you could throw him. In his late teens, a flamboyant Cunanan openly embraces his sexuality. Andrew Cunanan, as a teenager, never hid the fact that he was gay. He claimed it. He was proud of it. From the get-go, was out there trying to get into gay bars, hanging out with an older crowd. Starved for attention, Cunanan receives a cheeky acknowledgement from his fellow classmates upon his graduation from Bishops. In the yearbook, he was named most likely to be remembered. At a certain point, these people just didn't take him seriously. And he hated that. He hated not being taken seriously. A fire of resentment starts to build within Andrew Cunanan. The problem with Andrew is that once he got a taste for blood, there was no stopping him. His bloodthirst will be fed across the country, landing right on the doorstep of Versace. And he decided he had to do something big, really big. And there's no one bigger than Versace. July 15th, 1997. Donatella Versace is shocked to learn her designer brother Johnny is murdered in cold blood outside his Miami villa on Ocean Drive. The police descend on South Beach searching for the escaped murderer, who is armed and dangerous. Authorities know that catching the killer quickly is critical because the victim is a Versace and the world is watching. Throughout the early 70s, Gianni Versace designs with several Italian clothiers. In 1978, he opens his own shop in Milan and the Versace name takes off. There's a quote that says, Armani designs for the wife and Versace designs for the mistress. Johnny made naughty, naughty couture. Like some people do hot couture, he did naughty couture. I mean, the sheer tops, the sheer bottoms, the crazy lace, like leather and metal and bangles and diamonds. Things that most designers would balk at or, or find almost trashy. Gianni knew that that's what people really wanted. Donatella was the artistic director. I think she was the one who would push the envelope. Things that he may have not been so willing to embrace or try, she would really get out there and push it. At the height of her fashion success, Donatella marries model Paul Beck. They immediately have two kids, Allegra and Daniel, and life is great. Life is beautiful. She's enjoying her role 
not only as a wife and a mother, but also as the powerhouse behind Versace. Well, the Versace celebrate their international success. In Southern California, 19-year-old Andrew Cunanan receives the ultimate rejection. His father was under investigation for embezzling $100,000 from the stock brokerage firm and fled back to his native Philippines, leaving the mother on food stamps and welfare. Andrew, I think, was really shaken by that. He was abandoned by a man that he thought he could trust. He felt rage and anger and an almost adolescent fury. Having dropped out of college and with no support from his family, Andrew decides to use his sharp looks to survive. Andrew Cunanan was a, a male prostitute, and he catered to a specific clientele, which was uh, older, uh, wealthy men. Andrew wanted money very badly, so he found it in older men, in sugar daddies. He was very smart and very capable of kind of creating conversation with whomever he wanted, which I think these rich older men really found sexy and interesting. And Andrew is handsomely rewarded for his attention. He had several regular sugar daddies who would even give him allowances, pay for his rent, pay for his clothes. And all he had to do was stay in shape, look good, dress well, have manners. And Andrew took this on as his job. In 1990, reportedly while on a short pleasure trip north to San Francisco, Cunanan discovers one of his idols is in town designing the costumes for the opera Capriccio. The designer, Gianni Versace. You know, Versace was for him what, you know, Madonna might be for a pop music lover. It, it was the holy grail to meet Versace. Maybe in his delusional mind, he thought he could be the next muse of Versace, that Versace could be his next great patron and keep him as a boy toy. Reportedly, Cunanan finds his way to a nightclub where Versace is enjoying an opera after party and navigates his way to the VIP section. Andrew saw Versace, knew he needed to meet him, believed he deserved Versace's attention, and went out of his way to get it. He used some connection to get behind the velvet rope. He immediately, you know, faked it. Hello, Johnny. Hello, Mr. Versace. And of course, Versace, being extremely polite, says something innocuous like, hi, do I know you from Lake Como in Italy? Of course, for Johnny Versace, he's just working the room. He's just being polite to everyone. But to Andrew Cunanan, this is his defining moment in life. In the years that follow living in San Diego, Cunanan befriends a former military officer named Jeffrey Trail. Jeff Trail had been in the Navy. He was a very clean-cut, Midwestern, conservative, religious young man who was trying to explore his sexual orientation. Andrew Cunanan zoned right in on Jeff Trail, befriended him, tried to make him comfortable in his own skin. In 1995, Andrew returns to Northern California and makes a love connection. Andrew's in San Francisco and he sees a good-looking man at the bar and he buys him a drink. That man is David Natson, a Minneapolis architect in town on business. After connecting in San Francisco, Cunanan and Natson start a long-distance relationship. 
This was everything Andrew had ever wanted. It was actually somebody who was in his age group. He told his friends that David Madsen was the great love of his life. And at some point, David Madsen and Jeffrey Trail were introduced to each other by Andrew Cunanan, and the three of them became friends. But over time, Andrew's compulsive lying forces both Trail and Madsen to slowly pull away. You're not kids anymore. You just want to have authentic relationships with people, and Andrew could not offer that. David grew tired of it. David was like, you know, I love you. You're not changing. I want you to change. You're not changing. And so David broke up with him. Jeffrey Trail also cuts ties with Cunanan and makes a surprise move. Jeffrey Trail decided to move from San Diego to, of all places, Minneapolis to be near his friend David Madsen. And whether or not they were starting a relationship together, certainly that is how Andrew perceived it. Now in his mid-20s, Andrew loses the two men closest to him, but he also loses his sugar daddies, which starts to affect his bottom line. He's not A-list anymore. He is kind of a has-been. They're busy looking for a fresh 18-year-old in many cases. The curtains are closing on his show. He started drinking, he started gaining weight, he was getting aggressive, he ran out of money, and so he was furious. Despite being maxed out over $20,000, a desperate Cunanan begs his credit company to extend his limit. He actually got his credit card company to give him just enough so that he could afford a one-way ticket to Minneapolis and go visit his friends David Madsen and Jeffrey Trail. A broken Andrew Cunanan flies to Minneapolis to confront the two men he loved the most. When that bubble finally got burst and the lies were all exposed and he realized he couldn't keep the game going anymore, he was going to go on a downward spiral and fall hard. He knew he wasn't coming home. He knew he was never coming back to San Diego. He was all in. And once he arrives, a spray of bloody terror begins. These two were crimes of passion. He acted out his rage. In the late 1990s, Donatella Versace and her brother Johnny are developing a family fashion brand. With his glamorous younger sister Donatella as his partner, Johnny becomes a tour de force in the industry. In stark contrast, a fame-obsessed Andrew Cunanan starts to lose grip of his dreams, his money, and his mind. He's been cast out by his supportive sugar daddies, and now he tells friends that he's got unfinished business to attend to. It is only a matter of time before Cunanan and Versace cross paths again. And when they do, the moment between the two will be explosive. By the mid-1990s, the house of Versace stands firmly atop the fashion world as a leader and innovator. The house of Versace basically became the city of Versace. They didn't just do couture, they did perfume, watches, house goods. They have hotels. They have things that you would never imagine a fashion giant to even think about creating. They were like, what can we do to be bigger, to be better, to be bolder, to be more present in people's lives? The Versaces wanted their hand in every cookie pot. Celebrities worldwide gravitate to the Versace brand and more specifically, to the face of the brand, 
Donatello was the face of Versace. Once Madonna met Donatella Versace, the charm, the enigmatic ability that she had to draw you in, there was no turning back. She didn't just dress people like Madonna and J-Lo and Beyonce. She ran with that crowd. She was part of the celebrity circle. And everyone wanted to be with her and be seen with her and wear what she was designing. By 1995, designer Gianni Versace faces a real threat to his health. He got a rare form of inner ear cancer. He went into hiding, and so Donatella stepped in, kind of presiding over the company. The weight of the company fell much heavier on her shoulders. Luckily, Gianni got better. One of Gianni's many retreats is Casa Casarina, a villa he refurbished along Miami's fabulous Ocean Drive in South Beach. It had eight bedrooms, 10 bathrooms, a beautiful pool, garden area, bar, restaurant. Gianni loved, loved South Beach. He thought it was the most incredible, passionate, alive place to be at the time. And he wanted that community to be a part of his family. Did you know you can stream the Murder in the Family TV series on Roku and Fire TV? Well, you can. Just download the Reels app and subscribe to see the crime scene photos and reenactments behind this podcast. If you've got Prime Video, Murder in the Family is on Amazon channels, too. You could even find new episodes on Sean P. Diddy Combs, Robert Blake, and the Manson Family before they are podcasts. Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. Find Reels on your TV by going to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-C.com. Leaving San Diego, Andrew Cunanan joins his friends Jeffrey Trail and David Madsen in Minneapolis. He knew he was never coming back to San Diego. He had burned every bridge. Everyone knew that he was a liar, knew that he didn't come from a wealthy family. And if Jeff Trail could move to Minneapolis and start a new life, why couldn't he? Based on eyewitness testimony, Cunanan crashes at both Madsen's loft and Trail's apartment while staying in town. On April 27th, Cunanan leaves a phone message for Jeffrey Trail to visit him at David's loft. Cunanan had spent the night at Trail's apartment the night before and had taken his 40 caliber gun. Did he do that to provoke, to lure Trail over to Madsen's apartment? Did he take it impulsively? One thing's for sure, Trail, as a former military guy, needed his gun back, knew that it was not safe in the possession of Andrew Cunanan. Once Trail enters Matson's loft, neighbors hear a violent argument heating up. There was some kind of confrontation. I think Trail got in Cunanan's face, as only a friend can do. We all know you're a liar. We know that you don't come from a wealthy family. We know you don't have a job. We know everything. And then Cunanan lunges at Jeffrey with a claw hammer. He was struck or approximately 27 times. Neighbors heard uh, a struggle or they heard the yelling or, or screams. And he attacked him with the claw side of the hammer, which basically is two blades, knives. And in criminology, it's usually considered peakerism 
a stabbing motion, the subconscious sexual act from somebody who feels impotent at the exact moment. From a psychological perspective, is kind of the ultimate fu. No one knows if David Madsen is present during the savage bawling of Jeffrey Trail. But whether he witnessed it or came home just a little bit after it, he had to have been terrified. And in his completely manipulative manner, I think that Andrew terrified Madsen into compliance. Don't forget, he still had Jeffrey Trail's gun. He put the gun on Madsen and made him cooperate. Trail's body gets rolled up into a carpet and hidden behind a couch. Witnesses see Madsen and Cunanan the next day, walking David's dog. But then, the two vanish. Andrew wasn't just sad and upset; he was a sociopath, and he got a taste for blood, and he couldn't stop. On May third, fishermen at East Rush Lake in Minnesota, about an hour's drive north of Minneapolis, stumble upon the body of David Matson. David has gunshot wounds to his head, back, and hand. Because there is no atheist in a foxhole, I'm sure David told him whatever he thought he could say that would calm Cunanan down and save his life. But in the end, it was all for naught. Cunanan still had feelings for Madsen. In the end, I think he just killed him execution style, expeditiously, because he had to get rid of a witness. I believe Cunanan's state of mind at that point was completely altered. There was no turning back from what he had done. Minnesota cops can now tie Cunanan to these two bloody murders, but Andrews fled the scene. Having stolen Matson's red Jeep Cherokee, Andrew drives southeast toward the city of Chicago to the home of Lee Miglin. In the Chicago suburbs, he ends up at the house of a wealthy real estate developer, financier, a 72-year-old man who's married and has grown children. Precisely the kind of man that may have been a patron to Andrew Cunanan. Marilyn Miglin, herself a cosmetics executive, returning from a business trip, lands in Chicago. When her husband Lee does not pick her up at the airport, she worries. Alone, Marilyn taxis to her Gold Coast home. She gets home and finds the gate is unlocked and goes into the house. And it's clear that someone has been there. That Lee is a fastidious housekeeper, but the place is in complete disarray. Marilyn finds food scattered around the house, along with cash and personal items missing. But her husband Lee is still unaccounted for. So she calls the police. When officers arrive, they make a horrifying discovery in the Miglin garage. Andrew Cunanan tortured and murdered Lee Miglin in a particularly violent way. He wrapped Lee Miglin in duct tape, including his entire head, almost mummifying him. Andrew Cunanan stabbed him repeatedly uh, with pruning shears and a screwdriver. Much like Jeffrey Trail, this murder is particularly bloody and cruel. He also used a hacksaw uh, to slash his throat. He had a gun. He had used it before. He did not use it in this case. That makes you think there's something, some motive behind killing a person that way. The Miglin family denies any prior relationship between Lee and Andrew, but since there was no signs of forced entry, police speculate the two men. Must have crossed paths before. 
there are no coincidences with Andrew Cunanan. He didn't end up at that house by accident. That is a personal crime. It had to be born of a deep-seated rage. So either Miglin refused to help him or had, in Andrew Cunanan's mind, done him wrong sometime in the past. We'll never know. Incredibly, Chicago police and the FBI catch a break in their search for the elusive Cunanan. They find David Matson's red jeep, abandoned close to the Miglin home, and realize Andrew fled the scene in Lee's missing green Lexus. Lee Miglin was so wealthy, he was one of the rare people who had a cell phone in his car. Fancy vehicles that had car phones, the second you turned the car on, you're pinging a cell tower, which means that the police finally have a way to track Andrew. Cell tower data confirms Cunanan driving across Pennsylvania, heading east. The police put out an APB that we are now looking for a specific person, Andrew Cunanan, and he's driving a green Lexus and he's heading towards the east coast, probably to New York City. Unfortunately for the authorities, news of the cell phone tracking gets picked up by the press. Andrew Cunanan was either reading the papers or heard some announcement, perhaps on TV or on the radio, that they were looking for this green Lexus that belonged to Lee Miglin. He knew he had to ditch that car. And he decided to do that in a very remote cemetery in New Jersey. Inside Finns Point National Cemetery, Andrew Cunanan swaps Lee Miglin's Lexus for a red pickup but not before he commits his fourth murder, the shooting of 45-year-old caretaker William Reese. William Reese, he was in his office, found shot in the head, uh, execution style. Micklin's car was discovered at the cemetery and Reese's car was taken. By this time, Cunanan has killed four men. He is no longer in a rage or a panic or in a vindictive mode. He's all business. He knows now the manhunt is on. After the reshooting, National News picks up the story. Dr. Casey Jordan is called on by CNN to provide analysis of this spree killer. Because you can see the wake of terror behind them, but you have no idea where they're going next, who their next victim will be. At that time, of course, we were just looking for somebody who had killed two people in Minnesota, somebody in Chicago, and then another guy in New Jersey. No one really could figure out the connection, although they were sure it was this one man, Andrew Cunanan. And the real question is, would he kill again, and where was he headed next? Andrew escapes detection from police and ends up in Miami, Florida. Where else can I go that has an international airport, a large gay community, enough of a population that I can blend, but they're not really looking for me? And he chose Miami. Once he reaches South Beach, Andrew Cunanan, now a wanted man, lays low plotting his next move. He realized there probably wasn't any way that he could get out of the country alive and that he might as well go out with a bang. Spree killer Andrew Cunanan is a hunted man. After murdering four men in the space of two weeks, he travels to Florida. Hiding out in Miami South Beach, Andrew knows the feds are conducting a nationwide search for him. He's now a desperate character, facing the final chapter of his personal horror story. The only question remaining is, 
Will Cunanan kill again? Upon reaching South Beach, Andrew Cunanan rents a cheap hotel room. When Cunanan gets to Miami, he goes and stays kind of in a flophouse hotel called the Normandy, about $30 a night. In the weeks that follow, Cunanan moves around South Beach hiding in plain sight. He basically went out at night, stayed in, indoors all day, going to gay clubs at night and uh, uh, partying and meeting people. For the next two months, Cunanan lives largely off the money stolen from the Miglin house, and he continues to evade capture. He's put his thumbprint down at the pawn shop where he sold Lee Meglin's coins. He checked in to the Normandy Hotel with his ID. Nobody was realizing he was in their midst. In June, Cunanan makes the FBI's 10 most wanted list. And the television program America's Most Wanted does a feature profile about Cunanan's killings. And he is quickly spotted by a fast food worker. Police responded, but before we arrived, he had left the restaurant. We've missed opportunities. That was certainly an opportunity to catch him. In July, the summer heat is bearing down on Andrew Cunanan. What was his next step? Was he thinking of trying to get on a plane at the Miami airport? Could he use his real passport? What was he going to do next? He realized there probably wasn't any way that he could get out of the country alive and that he might as well go out with a bang. Radio transmissions were coming into our communication center and also phone calls were being received at the same time. I would say within a minute of the shooting, give or take, uh, our officers were on the scene. The uh, crime scene included several items that belonged to Mr. Versace, including uh, his sandals, the newspapers that he bought, his keys that were still in the keyhole of the gate. People were absolutely blown away that somebody could have murdered Versace in cold blood right outside of his home. Even after he was taken away, people stayed there. They stopped outside the steps. They brought candles and flowers. The tragic news soon reaches the Versace family in Italy. Once he was actually um, pronounced dead, Donatella got the phone call in Italy. Donatella then immediately, immediately gets on a plane and flies to Miami. Hours after the shooting, in a Miami parking garage, the police find the red truck belonging to William Reese, Andrew's New Jersey murder victim. Cunanan has left a wealth of damning evidence behind. A pile of clothes that was left discarded. We found items belonging to William Reese, some other forms of ID. Found some items that belonged to Midland, including, I believe, the Lexus key. 
These were not mistakes. He wanted everyone to know, I am Andrew Cunanan. I am the guy you can't catch. You found William Reese's truck. It's been here for a month and you didn't even know I was here. A law enforcement net descends around the island to catch a killer. We had canines uh, to do searches. We also had aviation support. As the authorities ramp up their search for Cunanan, the press converges on Miami. The story is followed closely by media outlets worldwide. I remember when CNN called me and said, remember you've been covering this crime spree of the four men? They believe that guy just killed Versace. And I remember dropping the phone and going, that's impossible. In criminology, this doesn't happen. A spree killer killing a celebrity just to become famous. And that kind of new baseline, the fact that we were seeing something that we'd never seen before, the media covered it constantly. How the spree will probably end is going to be either a police shootout or a suicide, which is more typical of a mass murderer. The police have Miami on lockdown for eight days. Cars on the island are searched, leads are checked, and an armed presence can be seen on the streets. It was a 24-7 operation. We had significant amounts of personnel and resources that were deployed throughout the city by creating these chokeholds by having visibility, checking suspect vehicles, persons. I believe we drove Andrew Cunanan into a corner. So Andrew finds a houseboat that isn't being used, and he jimmies the lock and he breaks into it, and he's living there, hoping that this will die down, hoping the helicopters will go away, that the FBI will back off. Now splashed across every news medium, Cunanan's story is being broadcast to the world. I've interviewed enough killers to know that after they kill, they go and watch TV. 20 years ago, there wasn't social media. There wasn't Facebook or Instagram. All of your fame was on the 24-hour news networks and in the newspapers. The elation of all the attention that he's getting, watching the news, reading the papers, going, I did it. Look at how famous I am. But Andrew Cunanan's glory days are numbered. By the time that he killed Gianni Versace, he was a wanted man, and that uh, he was running out of time. Later, Donatella Versace's world will come crashing down. She spiraled, and she spiraled fast, and she spiraled hard. In July of 1997, the Versace family reels following the shooting murder of Gianni at the hands of Andrew Cunanan. Baby sister Donatella has her attorneys release a statement, but she stays out of the public eye. I think the silence really speaks more than anything they could have released to the public. They simply were unprepared for such an event and did not know how to process it. Then Donatella and her brother Santo take Gianni back home and home was Italy, and they wanted to go home with their brother. The easiest and fastest way to get him home was to cremate him, which is not exactly a a tradition. The Italian tradition is to have an open casket. Regardless of tradition, celebrities and fans of Johnny travel to Italy to pay their last respects to the fallen designer. They had an incredible, beautiful, almost ostentatious funeral at the Duomo, which is this beautiful 14th century church. This church was packed to the gills. Princess Diana, Elton John, celebrity after celebrity. It almost doesn't matter who is there. 
because it was who wasn't there. Gianni Versace was gone. After nine days of searching for Cunanan, the Miami authorities receive a strange phone call. On July 23rd, but a call came in from a caretaker that was responsible for uh, watching a houseboat located at 5250 Collins Avenue. When that call came in, my first thought was, I, I think this is going to be the one. We had received information that Andrew Cunanan was spotted in that area on, on a couple of separate occasions. The houseboat caretaker observes the door has a Jimmy front lock, so he enters gun in hand. The caretaker opens the door and sees some disarray, some clothes that are on the floor, and realizes the houseboat has been broken into. And then he hears a huge bang from upstairs. And when he heard the shot, obviously he had his weapon out, but he retreated from the houseboat. He thought he was uh, the target of that shot. He probably thought that he walked in on a uh, burglary in progress. The FBI and police feel strongly that they have finally found Cunanan. So the entire force descends on Collins Avenue. With the amount of resources we had in the city, I think everybody responded. Uh, we set up a command post across the street as people continued to arrive. Everybody converged. Every police helicopter, police squad car, every media van converged on that house. But it really did look like a carnival or a circus. It's exactly what Cunanan would have wanted. Police first call for the houseboat intruder to come out and surrender. The attempts that were made had everything from PAs to bullhorns to uh, hostage negotiators to landlines and a hard line that was actually tossed into the boat. There were multiple attempts to try to make contact with uh, the person inside that boat. After hours of waiting, the police fire tear gas into the house, and then they wait some more. Another 30 minutes went by. Another round of gas was deployed into the houseboat. Uh, shortly thereafter, the uh, SWAT team made entry. Upon making entry, uh, when they got to the second floor, that's when the body of Andrew Cunanan was found on the bed. Cunanan lies dead of a head wound fired using Jeffrey Trail's handgun. The same weapon used to kill David Matson, William Race, and Johnny Versace. Cunanan definitely didn't want to go to prison. The ultimate control was taking his own life. The attention he was seeking, he got. We gave him all the fame that he was craving. And in the end, the director, the controlmeister, kind of had the upper hand. Tonight, all across the nation, our citizens can stand down and breathe a sigh of relief. The reign of terror brought upon us by Andrew Cunanan is over. His reign of terror was, was over. Uh, he wasn't going to kill anybody else. At the same time, the opportunity to learn more about him, his motives, his rationale uh, to do these horrific things. Th those opportunities were lost, and, and that was a tough pill to swallow. Cunanan being dead probably brought Donatella Versace absolutely no peace. And certainly the media circus brought her a lot of grief, more grief than she could bear. In the days, weeks, and years that follow, Donatella Versace mourns her brother's untimely death. A huge part of Donatella died that day that she'll never get back. She spiraled, and she spiraled fast, and she spiraled hard. 
Donatella turns to drugs and alcohol to numb her pain. Her anguish takes a toll on her immediate family. Unfortunately, when you close yourself off from the world, you close yourself off from healing. And her husband, Paul Beck, could not reach her. And they divorced not too long after Johnny's death. She fell into a deep depression. It's extremely hard to maintain a relationship or marriage in the face of such devastating grief. But in 2004, Versace seeks treatment for her addiction and her life starts to turn around. She threw herself back into the Versace brand, threw herself back into her family, threw herself back into everything that would have made Johnny proud. I was like I knew everybody was looking at me and trying to compare me to Johnny, but he did not compare me to Johnny, Johnny was Johnny. Nobody else ever could have been like you. So I need to find my own voice. Donatella can stand on her own two feet. She's a warrior. She's powerful and creative. She's unstoppable. Tell us about your outfit, honey. Versace. I saw Donatella with it, and I had to have it for the Grammys. <laughs> She's just not iconic now. She's almost a deity. She, her martyrdom for having survived the murder of her brother with grace and class and managed the inner turmoil and darkness, we worship her. There will never be another Donatella Versace. Donatella Versace is quoted as saying, My brother was the king and my whole world had crashed around me. Despite the pain she suffered after her brother's tragic death, Donatella picks herself up and continues to soldier on with her fabulous career. She cultivates personal relationships with top celebrities like Madonna, Lady Gaga, Beyonce, Jennifer Lopez, and Kendall Jenner. With her family and designing team by her side, Donatella Versace thrives as an international fashion icon, a fixture in pop culture, and a champion of ageless beauty and style. I'm Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo Rivera's Murder in the Family comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of Murder in the Family, including chilling reenactments and crime scene photos you'll only get on Reels Channel.